Good morning. It's nice to be back home in Albuquerque. We've had our vacation, and sure enough, school is starting. Lord willing, I'll be in Philadelphia with a bunch of college students next Sunday, so I solicit your prayers for their safety and my safety, and as, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, that I may be guided to say what I should say uh, to those, uh, those college students. What did the Apostle Paul want a church to do? Paul planted churches in many cities. He wrote letters to instruct and encourage a lot of them. What did he want them to do? Now, we could take any of Paul's letters and find a good answer to that question. But I'm going to focus on the letter we call Ephesians. And I'm going to tell you that I think Paul wanted each church to become a local example of what it means to be God's new humanity. Now, you probably noticed that I referred to the letter we call Ephesians. That letter differs in several ways from Paul's other letters. And Bible scholars have provided several explanations for those differences. The explanation that makes the most sense to me, and it may not be right, but the one that makes the most sense to me is a suggestion that Paul did not send this letter to the church in Ephesus, but rather that he sent it to a number of churches in towns around Ephesus. Some of the most ancient manuscripts of the text do not include the words in Ephesus. That fact and the differences between Ephesians and the other letters suggest that it perhaps was not written to that city but to others, or at least not only to that city. In other words, the letter may have been written to a number of churches around Ephesus Churches such as Colossae and Laodicea and Hyopolis and Sardis and Thyatira and so on. I tell you that in order to explain why I think Ephesians is a good place to look for an answer to my question. Whether or not you share my view about where the letter was originally sent. Unlike most of Paul's letters that are focused on the specific details of a single congregation, Ephesians seems to have been written in such a way that it applies rather directly to lots of churches. So that's why when I think, what did Paul want a church to do? The possibility of looking at Ephesians comes to my mind. Now there are several passages in Ephesians that talk about the work of Christ in remaking, reshaping, or recreating those of us who've put our trust in him. I'm going to call your attention to two passages where these ideas are most explicit, Ephesians 2.10 and 2.15. And if you're using one of our NIV Bibles, that's on page 1174. But you can also find it in Ephesians chapter 2 in any translation. In Ephesians 2.10, the apostle explains, we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. That passage tells us that good work should be a characteristic of each of our lives. It tells us that the good works we should engage in are not some set of radically new behaviors, but behaviors that God built into humanity when he made us, designed into the very fabric of human existence. Examples which one can find in Ephesians and elsewhere include generosity and fairness and kindness and forgiveness. But while we, before we were Christians, lived that way only at times and frequently because we could see it was to our advantage, we now do it because we're Christians, because that's the life for which we have been recreated. In Ephesians 2.15, my second passage, the apostle explains that God has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. This passage tells us that God now intends to reunite humanity into one community. This specific passage is talking about the division between Jew and Gentile, but all of us who know something about Paul's teaching are aware that he regularly challenged all three of the major social divisions of his time, the division between Jew and Gentile, the division between male and female, the division between slave and slaveholder. I want to explore some of the implications of these two passages in Ephesians. I'm going to organize what I say first into a discussion of the new individual and then second into a discussion of the new community. And while I talk about these as though they could be separated, you will recognize that they are interlaced, that they overlap. Under the heading of the new individual, I've listed three out of what could have been a dozen admonitions that the Apostle Paul offers in the text of Ephesians. I intend these only as examples, and in the interest of time, I'll discuss only the first one, anger. Paul mentions anger in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. That's a passage that would sound familiar to many of us. It says, be angry, but do not sin. But the apostle is even more forceful a few verses later in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Some commentators think the six Greek words that sounded like different forms of anger, and that's what they are, are in fact intended to be a kind of ladder of sin. We start with bitterness, and we end with a corrosive and active state of malice. All of us, I suspect, certainly I, would recognize that we experience negative emotions they can fester in our hearts. They can corrode our character. And if we nurse the bitterness that shows up periodically, 
we are indeed likely to slip deeper into sin. Paul is quite blunt that while Christ's new man or new woman may experience bitterness or anger, he or she should not act on them. Instead of allowing bitterness to lead to wrath and so on, up or down the ladder, the new man, the new woman, strives to practice kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. But I don't want to talk only about our behavior as individuals. In fact, I think it's even more important that we think about what the apostle meant when he discussed what it means to be a new community. Thinking about community does not come easily to us in the same way that thinking about individual behavior does. Our national culture encourages us to think of ourselves as autonomous individuals, responsible for all that we do and in control of basically everything that happens. Paul's letter encourages us to think of ourselves as part of a community, part of a body, part of a unified group. And he encourages us to try to create a certain kind of community. In fact, he expects us to create a certain kind of community. Now, once again, I've listed just a couple of examples, and I'll take time only to talk about the first one. The passage we read earlier talked about how God acted to create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. That addresses the persistent division between Jew and Gentile that was characteristic of the ancient world. Some of you, as you look at that passage, may find that language kind of surprising. You may, in fact, be remembering what the older translation said there. They talked about one new man. And that is literally what the Greek says. In this image, Paul talks about God taking a Jewish man and a Gentile man and making them one man. That is, of course, a metaphor. Paul pictures the Jewish people, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, as a single Jewish individual. And he pictures all of the Gentile nations, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, as a single Gentile individual. And then he talks about taking those two men and making them one. Now, it probably tells you something about me when I tell you that when I think about two men being combined, what comes to my mind is Star Trek. In an episode titled The Enemy Within, we find the Enterprise in orbit around an alien planet Crew members are visiting the surface, and as crew members go back and forth, the transporter becomes contaminated with magnetic dust. As a result, when Captain Kirk is beamed back up to the ship, beam me up, Scotty, the transporter malfunctions and splits the captain into two people. The first Captain Kirk, who materializes in the transporter bay, feels a bit disoriented. So Dr. McCoy and Mr. Spock quickly take him away for a medical examination. Consequently, 
they all missed the fact that a few seconds later, a second Captain Kirk materializes. And so, while no one notices at first, there are now two different Captains Kirk aboard the Enterprise, each of which is only a part of the original man. One Captain Kirk, let's call him the sensitive Captain Kirk, <laughs> wears a green shirt with gold braid. He is thoughtful. He is sensitive to human suffering and moral dilemmas. And as a result, he frequently hesitates and equivocates. He is passive, insecure. He has a hard time making decisions. The other Captain Kirk, let's call him the decisive one, wears a yellow shirt. His appearance on screen is often signaled with darker lighting and ominous music. He is fully aware of his desires. He has no trouble making decisions. In fact, he is quick to act on them. The decisive, the decisive Captain Kirk prevails on his friends such as Dr. McCoy to do things they don't want to do. He guzzles brandy straight from the bottle. He visits yeoman Janice Ryan in her private quarters and forcefully expresses his desires. Fortunately, members of the crew eventually realize they are dealing with two Captains Kirk. Then, at an opportune moment, Mr. Spock, using a Vulcan neck pinch, renders the decisive Captain Kirk unconscious. I wish I knew how to do that. This makes it possible for the sensitive Captain Kirk to observe his more impulsive twin and to suffer because that man seems to be suffering. After some additional twists and turns, the sensitive Captain Kirk cradles the now unconscious decisive Kirk in his arms. He steps into the freshly repaired transporter bay. Mr. Spock energizes the transporter and to everyone's relief. The person who emerges this time is one man, James T. Kirk, newly reunited and whole again. Now, lest you worry that I have wandered too far afield, <laughs> let me briefly retell one of the major stories that runs through the Bible that you know. Once long ago, God created mankind. He cared about them, and he wanted a loving relationship with them. Humanity, however, chose to rebel, but God is faithful. He continued to desire a loving parental relationship with us. So he began to implement a long-term plan. The plan was designed to call humanity, all humanity, into a voluntary, affectionate relationship with their Creator. One of the steps of his plan was to split humanity into two parts. God's chosen people and everybody else. God chose a man named Abram, later renamed him Abraham, and promised him that through his lineage of chosen people, all humanity would be blessed. Over the centuries, God's plan unfolded. 
Abram's descendants became a great people, 12 tribes of them. They became a nation. They split into two nations. One of those nations was called Judah, and the citizens of that nation came to be called Jews. And by the time the Messiah came into the world, the division between Jew and Gentile was well established. But the Messiah who came to the Jews also cared about Gentiles. He told his apostles that he expected them to go into all the world. That is, even to Gentiles. And as Paul explains in Ephesians, in the church, God now intends to reunite all humanity. He is taking the Jewish people and the Gentile people and putting them back together. Now, in modern times, people who translate Ephesians have struggled with what's the best way to say that in modern English. One of their efforts, and one, as you've gathered already, that I particularly like, and you'd find this in the New International Version and the New Revised Standard, which is what I read, is to say, God created a new humanity. He took these people and these people and made them one. Now, in our time, the division between Jew and Gentile is not a problem in most congregations. But our nation continues to be troubled by a variety of divisions between groups. Divisions that result in one group of people regarding themselves as better than others, or perhaps more accurately, thinking of other people as less than themselves. The divisions that currently afflict our nation include divisions based on skin color, divisions based on ethnicity, divisions based on first language, divisions based on sexuality, divisions based on wealth, Divisions based on political affiliation. I've just been with my family. We've talked about our extended family. In my family, you can't have a conversation with about your extended family without remembering that the family is divided into groups over some matters. So part of our task as a church is to create a community in which such divisions become relatively unimportant. A community in which shared faith makes all worldly divisions insignificant. Our task is to cling to each other, to step into God's spiritual transporter, and to allow God to make us one. To make us one people. To create here in Albuquerque, another example of God's new humanity. I haven't tried to provide a complete list of all of the dimensions of the new community that Paul envisions. I simply want to remind us that God has called each of us to be a new sort of person, a person who is defined not primarily by other things, but by a lifestyle of good work. And God has called us to be part of a new kind of community, one that's not defined by biological relationships, but rather by spiritual ones. As Paul wrote in the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, 
From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Our recreation, at least mine, for sure, is a work in progress. It's one thing to acknowledge that we're called to a new lifestyle. It's something else to consistently resist the temptations that surround us. It's one thing to realize that we're called into a single family with all the other persons who've declared their faith in Christ. It's something else to treat a device and diverse set of individuals like family members. It takes a while. God has forgiven us. He has placed us into his family. But like a raucous group of newly adopted delinquents, we have a good deal to learn about how to be part of God's family and about how to really experience each other as brothers and sisters. And God does not compel us. He does not force us. Instead, he entreats us. He calls us. He urges us. He reminds us. One of God's reminders is the Lord's Supper. In just a moment, I'll lead a prayer, and we will then allow time for us to go to one of the tables set up here to your right, and participate in the Lord's Supper. If your physical condition doesn't allow you to climb steps, just remain in your seat and raise your hand, and we'll bring the emblems to you. Besides sharing the Lord's Supper, this is also a time that can be used for personal meditation and for prayer, either individually or with others. If you'd like to pray with one of our shepherds, Come here to the front area. There will be someone here waiting for you. In all cases, however, however we observe this time, let us remember what the Lord's Supper is about. It's a reminder of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It's a reminder that we've been placed into God's church and that day by day we are being recreated in the image of Christ. It's a reminder that we've been given a new family, a family include, that includes all these people who you see sharing the Lord's Supper with you. It's a reminder that just as our spirits have already been resurrected by God, so to someday will our bodies be resurrected and put on what is imperishable. 